This is Giant. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, get them out. You're listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast with myself, Hank of Fire Force Ventures and Bindu of Men Among Men Stories podcast. Hey, how are things, lads? I asked cheerfully. According to my plan, I produced a map, spread it out on the ground, and asked them to give me a brief. Copeland knelt down in the dust, putting his AK beside him on the ground, and began to talk. I watched him carefully as Shotgun Charlie wandered over to look at the map. As he came within reach, I kicked Copeland's AK out of the way with my foot and began setting about Charlie with the butt of my M2 carbine. He dropped his shotgun and screamed, I wasn't even fucking there! He knew perfectly well why we had come. I stepped back, covering them with my carbine, and told them I would kill them at once if they moved a muscle. Copeland just stared. That is a passage, a rather intense passage, from the book no Mean Soldier, the Autobiography of a Professional Fighting Man by Peter McAleese. Yeah, and, um, well, most of the books we cover cover a single war. But this one covers a lot of wars. This is the uh, story of a man who served through at, at least okay, six. Gotta, this is going to be a laundry list. So yeah, at least it's, six. It's at least six let's major. Let's start from the top. Let's start from yeah, the top. Okay. okay, he's in. He's a Scottish guy. Yes, Scottish soldier, still alive, still mm-hmm. kicking. Um, and we will have an opportunity to talk to him. This is the first of a three-part series, actually, basically. Yes. And we're going to conclude with an interview with Peter. But uh, so stay tuned for that. Stay tuned for that. But we're going to start from the top. Aiden Borneo. Angola. Rhodesia. South Africa. Colombia. And uh, a bunch of other weird security gangs in between all that, too. Yes, absolutely. Like, he, yeah, he was, he was all over the place. And yeah, this this guy was a true, and I, I don't mean this word, phrase in any way as an insult, but a true soldier of fortune. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he was in so many conflicts that we kind of have to break it up into three parts. Yes. Uh, and, and as with all the podcasts we do here at the Minimum Men Stories podcast, we do a very truncated look at these books. You guys have – this is not a replacement for reading the book. This is not a market replacement. You have to go out and actually check out this book for yourself. By the way, shameless self-plug, uh, No Mean Soldier. Signed copies of No Mean Soldier are available hardcover at my website, fireforceventures.com. Again, fireforceventures.com. Great website. Checking him out there, but definitely this is one to read for sure. Yeah, this is yeah. really, really, really good one. Again, so that that laundry list—it's just we have to like go. Th- it's 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 hard to kind of conceptualize because it's so many. It's decades of war. Yeah, it's um, aid, basically aid emergency, Borneo confrontation, Angolan civil war, Rhodesian bush war, South African border war, and uh, the Colombian drug war. Yeah, it's pretty much it's, like half the Cold War in yeah, a yeah 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 exactly. So today we're obviously not going to cover Peter's time in all of these conflicts. Uh, we're going to cut ourselves off at the Angolan Civil War. This is episode 18. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the first three major conflicts, and then on our next podcast, we'll talk about the 
last three major conflicts. Exactly. Um, this is uh, again not a not a substitute for actually reading this book. We're gonna skip through a heck of a lot. This is this is this was quite the cracker to get through. So um, hopefully you guys enjoy it. Uh, but we'll start we'll start with um, Peter's childhood that you know he discusses in in the book. He's he's born in Glasgow, Scotland, which in uh, this kind of post war period is is a pretty rough place. Right after yes. World War Two, the United Kingdom, for reference, unlike the United States, which survived the Second World War relatively unscathed as far and as And indeed came other... out better almost. Yeah, it actually exactly. came out Like there was a post-war uh, yeah, boom. And... In, in the UK, well into like the 50s, there was still food rationing. Yes. And the, there was still the, the rubble from the Blitz. There was still... There was still... There was a huge economic depression. And especially in some of the places like in some of the northern English cities like Yorkshire and in Glasgow... There was a certain amount of economic deprivation that you didn't even see in like London. Yeah, there was some very real problems with sort of crime and poverty and just things weren't as good as they used to be in these places. For sure, without question. Um, yeah, there were there was serious like social strife. There was a political. You could even say like there was a bit of political strife. Oh, ab- there, absolutely. There, there was strife everywhere. The British Empire was collapsing at this time, all around them. I wouldn't say decolonization had really aggressively started, but the ball was rolling. The ball was rolling, and dark times were ahead. And people knew this. People were out of work. Children being raised in this environment. Children like Peter Macleese was born into this world in Glasgow, this tough Scottish port town. Uh, he knew it. He actually, um, I guess, well, one of the one of the very poignant things he brings up is the cycle of, I guess, poverty that would happen, especially in the area where he grew up. So basically, a young kid. You know, around 13, 14 years old, especially if he was a boy, a man, a young man, would be able to get a apprenticeship in the dockyards. The reason that apprenticeships were relatively easy to get was you had to pay apprentices for welding or uh, car- masonry or carpentry or whatever whatever the job was, uh, or, or shipwrights and stuff. Th- that kind of work would be. Um, relatively cheap to have an apprentice do you would have to pay as as the owner of the company you'd pay them basically like a half rate or a three-quarter rate or whatever not the full rate and the moment you turned i so you you turn 18 uh you would probably get married right away because you had a little bit of an income because of the fact that a lot of families resorted to stuff like corporal punishment alcoholism was rampant guys tended to want to get away from their families because there were a lot of dysfunctional almost every family in the lower class at this time was very dysfunctional this post-war period you had fathers who had fought in the second world war that were very traumatized and had come home to a world they didn't really recognize anymore and they, they tended to like take it out on their families. This wasn't Peter's experience, but this as a generality, like this is the world that we're looking into in kind of the late 1940s, early 1950s, Scotland in particular. You turn 18, you get married, and then you might, you know, these, these guys were uh, 
what's the word? It's not libaceous, is it? Licentious. Licentious, I think is the word you're looking for. Sorry, it started with an L. Sorry, my uh, vocabulary is not as powerful as the Bindu vocabulary sometimes, but basically you had these very active young men who had a little bit of money in their pockets. They left their families. They'd have a kid. And at the moment, I think they turned 21. Uh, they, you, you could no longer be classed as an apprentice. You'd have to be now a journeyman or a, a qualified tradesman. Because all the, let's put it this way: there were no coding jobs back then. There were no yeah. banking jobs. There were no commercial sector jobs. There's no real retail jobs. It was all trades in Glasgow. It was a port town. Everything revolved around the shipyards. Yes, very much so. So, 21. It's like I got to pay you full price now. Bye. You're not getting a journeyman. You're not getting any further training. You're not getting any further certification. You don't work here anymore because I got to pay you 100%. I'm going to hire just some kid to do the same thing. And then these guys are going to get out of work, be looking for work, be desperately looking for work, turn to the drink, and basically turn into their fathers, the same yeah. fathers that they tried to get away with. And there's this constant cycle that Peter um, recognized. Now, that's a generality, obviously, that that this wasn't the exact sequence of events that happened with his family, but he noticed a lot of his childhood friends growing up. Uh, he saw this, this cycle of poverty and violence. And, um, you know, you, you, can, you can argue it was unfair in many ways. And in, in the same way that if we looked at uh, our last podcast, Reif, uh, Recollections of Rifleman Harris, the Napoleonic era was equally unfair for our... 2022 standards but this this is just the world they inhabited this was reality right tough and rough it was it was tough and rough they i don't think the guys saw it as a cosmic injustice that this was just the cycle of life it was just the cycle of life yeah and well they didn't again you wouldn't know anything i don't yeah exactly better if you were born in this environment exactly so this is what he's born into um and just to just to now back to peter he is born into this environment his father is a individual who serves in the Second World War, um, well, briefly, because unfortunately, as a very proud Scotsman, he's put into a Welsh unit, and he immediately <laughs> uh, knocks heads with some of the Welshmen there, gets thrown in military prison. Most of his time in the British Army is in a military prison. He doesn't actually go to the front. He, he begs them to send him to South Africa, because he doesn't want to be in the military prison anymore, and that's not something they do for him. Uh, and, and one of Peter's earliest memories, actually, and this is, we're not going to quote it directly from the book, this is just something you'll have to read, but it is just his dad. Not only his dad going to prison, but like his whole family being hauled off to prison because they were illegally squatting in an abandoned house. That's his, one of his earliest memories, right? is being put in the same prison as his dad. Um, and he, you know, to, for him, it's like a mark of honor. You know, seven yeah. or six years old or whatever, he's like, I've already been to prison. <laughs> like, he's, he's, he's like, he's like a, he's like a 12 year old, like, I've been to prison, man. Yeah. So they actually threw him in jail, his whole family. They just, like, not like in the, like, they slept in a jail cell. They weren't prisoners, but it was just like, you're squatting here. Yeah. The, the, the person you're dependent on, the father, is also in jail. There's no place to put you. You're squatting in an abandoned house that you're not supposed to be in. So they evicted them and they put them for a few weeks in jail where they lived in the jail until they 
uh, found other low-income housing, basically. Not not a uh, not an easy circumstance to grow up in. So that that was Peter's father. He was a he was a very tough individual, and his grandfather, equally tough, was a Argyll and Sutherland Sutherland Highlander. That's right, Argyll and Sutherland. I believe so. Yeah, we ref the book real quick here. I don't want to screw that up because Peter's uh, quite proud of his old his old granddad. It's actually hey wait wait wait, wait. it's right here. No 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 easier easier. I'm gonna find it way faster. Right there. There's actually a picture right off the oh, bat. Oh yeah, there you yes, you're right. Miles, Argyll Miles. and Sutherland yeah. Highlander. So we're just looking at if you if you do get a copy of the book or you have a copy of the book, it's like one of the first pictures in the picture section. This is uh, Grandpa Old Miles, who was an Argyll and Sutherland Highlander. Definitely looked. Believe served in the Great War. Yeah. Oh yeah. He was like at every campaign. I think he was there actually at the beginning. Like he was at every, he was at everything. One of the old, old contemptibles they yeah. called them. The the men who are from nineteen fourteen all the way to the end. Yeah, tough dude. Yeah, seriously tough dude. His son was equally tough. Unfortunately, it was more so the fact that he went to prison than had military experience. He did have, he was briefly in the army in World War Two, but um, he didn't have a very good experience because he spent all of it in jail. It was tough, and uh, Peter definitely describes Glasgow in, in many ways with more intensity than some of the actual war zones he's, he's involved in. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I noticed that going through, like, he describes the war zones, like, I mean, he certainly doesn't uh, leave out the gory details or the, you know, rough experiences there, but... I have to say, the way he describes Glasgow at the beginning is almost... It's almost a war. It's almost, it's a, almost war. a war zone of itself. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, it, stabbing, it almost sounds fights, worse yeah. in some ways than his experiences and I later. I think uh, for, for anybody with like from North America, right, we, we can kind of look back at the experience of like Harlem or whatever in the 80s. The or, or maybe Detroit, Detroit more recently is a good example. Just, just Parts that. of the south side of Chicago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Picture that, but even more lawless. Yeah. Right? Even more lawless. And the, the cycle of poverty in some ways being more extreme because people had even bigger families. Yeah. And uh, d- divorce was, I don't think there was any no-fault divorce. So it's just people were just in really toxic relationships. It, 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 it went, it, it passed forward to their children. It just, it was a, it was a pretty brutal cycle of poverty and violence and despair. So there are a lot of bits of the book that go into just how violent and horrible this place was. We we just kind of picked one out to give you guys a rough idea here without without, you know, reading the entire damn first chapter. In between the classroom, my education in violence continued and I became used to running around the streets and gangs. Like my father and Uncle Billy, fighting rivals with sticks, iron bars and knives became second nature. I went round tooled up with an axe or knife hidden under my jacket without thinking. I preferred a long bayonet, not for stabbing, but whipping the enemy about the head with the thick steel. Not surprisingly, Mr. Kelly expelled me from St. Roche's for fighting, and I went instead to St. Mark's for the last two years of schooling, which I finished age 15. To understand my behavior as a boy, you have to understand the subculture of the slums. Success in that environment was not measured by the usual indicators, a good job, a nice home, or a car. It was measured by how tough you were. 
Could you handle yourself? Could you go ahead? Were you capable of a comeback? One local called Tommy Scheint was obsessed with the westerns featuring a character called Edge and used to use Edge's favorite weapon, a razor. He had a comeback in Kenmore Street, and I remember Tommy's adversary leaving the scene minus an ear. But after a comeback, malice was uncommon. The pecking order was maintained or reshuffled, and everyone then carried on as normal. So you got guys like losing ears in basically knife fights and stuff. It's a rough town, Glasgow. For sure. And actually, I've, um, I actually have some family friends who are from Glasgow, like Scots, and it's, it's a very different town now, but it's always been a rough town throughout Scotland's history. So, but especially in this post-World War II period of like kind of mini depression, it's, it is a rough town. Yep. School wasn't any easier because it was it was Catholic school. He does mention it. There's there's a few more details in the book, but there are there is a lot of corporal punishment. The nuns and the priests seem to almost revel in it. It, it it's not there is there's no escape. However, there is a kind of very formative moment in the book where he's walking through the streets one day in typical Glasgow manner. It was probably raining, honestly, because it's Glasgow, and there's a guy walking around this this. Uh, Guy in very very shiny boots, his maroon beret, and his uh, denizen smock on, and he is a member of the parachute regiment, a Scottish paratrooper. And Peter look is, looks at this guy like he's Hercules, that he's he's seven feet tall, and I mean he was like a little kid, so this guy must look massive, especially with the denizen smocks because they're so bulky. Yeah, and, uh, he actually we took a picture of you yesterday wearing a Belgian uh, Congo like Paris smock. And that thing was pretty bulky on you. I yeah, you saw the picture. I said I emailed you this this morning. You look like you're a pretty decently sized, well built fellow, right? Of Celtic stock. Yeah, thanks. Just, just docks your uh, your ethnic ethnicity, but um, you look like Master Chief in Halo. Like you were just you're big. Yeah, it makes your shoulders look bigger when you wear. Oh yeah, no, it just so good way it's cut, right? Ex- Exaggerates yeah. the shoulders, yes. And you just you just look massive. You just look jacked. So can, you can just imagine this kid that kind of has no escape from this world of violence and sees this guy coming back home on leave, uh, walking around. He's like seven feet tall, shiny pair of boots, um, camo smock, maroon beret. He's just like, who is this guy? He ends up following for a while until the guy in typical Scottish fashion tells the little kid like. What the fuck do you want? Fuck off! <laughs> so, because he is a Scot, he is a Scottish paratrooper at this point. There are there are Scots uh, battalions in the parachute regiment of the British Army, the airborne unit of the British Army. So, the British equivalent, basically, of the 101st Airborne or 82nd Airborne, famous heroes of the Battle of Arnhem, um, D-Day landings, and actually operations in North Africa and Sicily and all that. So, the, these guys were absolute heroes to Peter growing up and it was that very formative experience first seeing one in real life he figured you know what like I'm gonna either end up in this cycle of violence and despair or I'm going to find a way out and this this is this is a really cool way out this is a great way out so right away that had a that had a big impact on him that's something we're definitely gonna have to ask him about meeting that seeing that guy for the first time just what what was going through his little head Mm-hmm. Um, in that moment so after that epiphany right away as 
well, once he's of age, he he joins up with the British Army, does basic infantry training, goes into the parachute regiment. Just he just keeps training and training and training. Uh, goes right to Hereford, Hereford, England. Actually, is it Wales? Hereford's in Wales, if I remember correctly. Uh, Maybe that, that's a quick that, Google check. That doesn't sound right. Hereford, I'm pretty is sure, is in England. Yeah, no, that is I'm not I'm thinking a, of Brecon. That, Brecon. Yeah, that's Brecon. not a Welsh Brecon's, name. Brecon's in, in Wales. That's right? not even an anglicized Welsh name. Double check that. Double check that on your phone right now. But um, All right. he does he does train at Brecon Heights and stuff. like. He does the special air service training right away at Hereford. I don't want to screw that up. Sorry, our English geography, or British geography is maybe not the best here. We know where Glasgow is, but... He goes to Hereford where he trains as a special forces soldier, basically. Herefordshire in the West Midlands of England. It is in England. Okay, there you go. So uh, he goes to Hereford where he trains as a... Or he actually is... Well, that's where the Special Air Service is garrisoned. I think they're still there to this day, from what I understand. So they're still garrisoned in Hereford. They're still doing their thing. And, uh, yeah, Special Air Service, the best of the best, who dares wins, the uh, the elite commandos of the Second World War. They had kind of built up a reputation. They had been reactivated during the Malayan emergency. There was a brief period where they didn't exist. They were refounded, and uh, they kicked off again with some pretty intense operations in the Malayan jungle, counterinsurgency operations, in many ways, that conflict has been called Britain's Vietnam. Very Except it was so. like far more successful. But it was it was yeah. an equally difficult counterinsurgency to fight. There were hundreds of thousands of Chinese communist guerrillas hiding in the jungles of Malaya, which was a British protectorate at the time. And they just basically had to stamp out. And all these guys were veteran Maoists who had largely served in the Second World War to some extent, either as fighting soldiers or propagandists. So these were the legendary tan parade men with the uh, winged, winged daggered men of the Special Air Service, the Pilgrims. And he joins that unit, passes the course with flying colors. In fact, he doesn't even go too deeply in the book into like the selection course at the time. Other than mentioning it was rudimentary, it wasn't the I, w I wouldn't say it was any easier than it is now to join a special forces unit in terms of the selection process, but it was it was more rudimentary. Which, me and we'll have to ask him about this, but, but that translates to me as maybe they just hit you with a stick rather than do some psychological torture yeah. Guantanamo Bay stuff on you and play Barney the Dinosaur during your uh, resistance to interrogation part. They'd probably maybe just hit you with a stick or something. <laughs> So that, that that's what I hear when I use the word rudimentary, especially given like the context of this world that uh, the late nineteen forties is. Yeah. It's probably you got hit with in the face with a stick, and and that was your interrogation. From there, he is uh, posted to the legendary SAS in Hereford and deploys on his first operational uh, tour of duty into a place called Aden, uh, the Aden Protectorate. Which is now basically modern day Yemen, which is a yeah part, a, of, part modern of modern day, part of modern day part, Yemen, of, modern part of modern day Yemen. Yemen. It's it's a much smaller yeah. area than Yemen itself. But, and it yeah. was at, but at the time though the Aden Protectorate was a British protectorate, in the same way as the SAS was reformed because of the Malay emergency, 
this uh, conflict had a similar situation. You had all these communist guerrillas that, um, well, were just causing trouble in a small British protectorate that was severely understaffed, that they didn't have enough money to, to deal with. Uh, they didn't have the manpower to deal with, and they had to use force multipliers like the SAS to go in there, train local forces, and do the job of putting down the communist insurgency. Doesn't that sound so familiar to a certain conflict in Africa? Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't it just keeps be. happening, doesn't it? So during the Aden Emergency and the Aden Protectorate, which is part of modern-day Yemen, the Brits dealt with a communist insurgency in a very similar vein as what they had dealt with in Malaya, where the Special Air Service was formed. A lot of guys that ended up going over to Aden with the Special Air Service had already served in Malaya, so so I guess there was a lot of skills overlap. There were a lot of dudes that had the experience of fighting a counterinsurgency war, actually with not a lot of money and like overstretched and having to serve as a force multiplier and augment local forces and train them and all that cool special forces stuff. So th this is the conflict uh, that we're getting ourselves into, and it's it's a whole new world for Peter. Uh, the nice thing about this book is Peter actually kind of breaks down each individual conflict before going into his experiences about them. He gives a like, yeah, really, he, really concise summaries. He gives basically like a paragraph yeah. or two's um, sort of summary in each. And because actually... Both of his activities in Aden and Borneo, these are wars I know very little about. I don't know if you know particular. I know about Borneo more. Actually, I know about both. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, anyway, know I, I will read these intros because I feel that's, it'll give probably our listeners a better grasp of these yeah, conflicts. they're very good. And this is one of the things I really liked about the book. Absolutely, yeah, me too. These great intros about it. The background is simply that Britain wanted out. This was officially called decolonization, but on British terms. For this, in February 1959, the Conservative government invented the Federation of South Arabia, roping together a motley crew of sultanates, emiratis, and sheikdoms, some of which had been enemies for generations. Aden Port was supposed to be an economic jewel which would generate income and tie in the tribesmen of the interior. The British supported the new federation's Arab leaders, the traditional rulers of these different groups, formed the British-officered Federal Regular Army and the Federal National Guard, and promised to keep troops there in support. This was the crucial part of the arrangement. HQ Middle Eastern Command was established in Aden in 1960, having been chased out of Egypt, Palestine, and Cyprus, and Britain was keen to keep naval and air-based facilities in Aden, which was still seen then as an important staging post to the Far East. However, the tribes in the interior wanted total independence. I suppose they did not trust either the British or the town Arabs ruling Aden, and they were stirred up with revolutionary Marxism by Egypt, where Nasser was top dog and hated the British after the Suez debacle. Russia was behind him. They kept up a stream of anti-British radio broadcasts from Cairo and Sana'a in Yemen, and supplied plenty of arms carried over the border on camels. So that is basically, as described by Peter, the situation. Uh, very similar to many of these sort of ex-colonies where the sort of educated classes in the, the cities often take over after the, the British or other European colonial powers leave and try to create sort of a system, but communist sort of, I guess, agitators 
are able to sort of whip up generally some of the some disenfranchised group. Yeah, yeah, external communist agitators are generally where able to whip up some disenfranchised group. Sometimes it's a rural peasantry, sometimes it's urban working class, sometimes it's a particular ethnic group that doesn't feel like it's getting its fair share. Um, and create that's what happened in Malaya with the, with the Chinese ethnic group. They were a minority and not well represented, and the Maoists were able to make significant inroads among that population. And I think a large part of, I guess the difference, the only difference with this in Malaya was that in Malaya they they were actually like armed and organized already. Yeah, uh, this was kind of from scratch. So this, you know, for what it's worth, this insurgency wasn't super extreme. Now, of course, the ba- the Battle of Mirbat will tell you otherwise because that this happened uh, during. The I think was was Mirbat during the Aiden emergency, if I remember. Correctly. I know nothing about the Battle of Mirbat. So Mirbat was uh, sixty sixty four. I want to say you can look that up. Battle, just look up Battle of Mirbat. That's the most we've looked things up live. Yeah, this uh, is live this recording. is definitely because there there are just there's so, so many wars, wars. <laughs> so many wars. We can't we can't even like. There's a lot of stuff to kind of uh, fall back on. That we have to fall back on. We just uh, quick, quickly looking stuff up because there's so much. There's so much to talk about. Am I? Am I? Are 1972 and in Oman, so oh, a different, man. Okay. Co- different, different country all these, altogether. Like, all these like desert countries. Yeah, it's not even on the same side of the peninsula. Like Aden and Yemen are south of Saudi Arabia. Oman is Oman's one of on the, the other, is where yeah, like uh, you've so been. You've been to this place. Been, you've been to Abu Dhabi. So. Yeah, no, I, I screwed that up. My apologies. Mirbat was much later. So yeah, this is a prototypical post-colonial commies versus non-commies conflict. Yes. Right. This is this is this is prototypical. The only difference between this and Malaya was perhaps the fact that in Malaya they were a little better organized and had more arms right off the bat, whereas. In Aden, the arms were being slowly funneled in, and the communist groups were not as well organized. For some reason, communism never seemed to take over or take off in the Arab world as much as it did in places like Latin America or other parts of Asia. I think part of that's population too. I think part of that's also that, like ideologies like Baathism, yeah, did did really take charge, but like actual Marxism, not not so. I, much. I think largely. Bits of that are due to the sparsity of the population. I, I you would think about it like, we're and I would here. also agree. I would also say the fact that religion, I think, plays a yeah. much yeah. higher. It, is Islam, I think, proved a much more formidable foe to communism than, say, Buddhism did. It, yeah, it's a way yeah. more formidable cultural force to kind of temper um, something, especially an ideology like communism, which is kind of antithetical to religion oh very in general. atheistic generally yeah, athe- yeah. yeah generally speaking right Gen- like yeah. obviously you can rope in religion to it but like it, it it religion comes secondary to like the revolution or the people or whatever always yeah like it just it comes secondary if it's if it's roped in at all so islam was a huge tempering influence and also like people are living in tents in the desert it, it, yeah. it's like what is this book? <laughs> no <laughs> means of production is that just like I that. have no. <laughs> I have I have camels. Like yeah, I have camels. I saw so, camels. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't as intense of an insurgency, but it was an insurgency nonetheless. And Absolutely. this is where uh, Peter basically gets into the first of many of many firefights in his career, uh, firing shots in anger, and actually the, this is this is. Um, 
not too big of a spoiler. We were debating whether or not to even read this one, but it's actually on the back cover of the book, uh, and it describes his, his first kill in combat, and it's a pretty um, intense experience, so we'll let Peter take it away. Well, Bindu, you can take it away on Peter's behalf. The rock slab which had been behind him was covered in blood, and there were six holes in a good group, chipped deep into the stone. I also discovered that the sharp explosion at my feet at the night before had been a British 36 grenade which had failed to explode. The detonator had fired, blowing the casing apart, but failed to set off the main charge. I had been lucky. I had survived. I felt good. I felt fit. I felt hard. That was the first time I had been in con a contact and killed anyone. This euphoria was nothing to do with ending another person's life. I felt good because I had not panicked. I had not let down my friends. I had reacted as a professional soldier trained by professional soldiers, and the excitement of the firefight had been nothing short of fantastic. I'd never taken drugs, but I can't believe there's anything which can equal the thrill of a battle. I loved it. Yeah, so a guy threw a grenade at him. It, amaz it actually did go off, but it didn't really... Ex it did, the explosives didn't go off. It just yeah. the primer like popped and stuff. Went pfft. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, to be fair, it was like an antique number thirty-six Mills bomb, which is yeah. which would have, who knows when it was made? It could have been made in like nineteen fifteen, for all we know. It yeah. could have been a really old grenade. Um, and this is like the sixties, so this would have been maybe a fifty-year-old grenade this guy threw, and uh, he dropped the guy with his L one A one. He just popped, dropped him, and that was his first firefight. A guy throwing a grenade at him and him shooting back at that guy, and. Uh, I mean, he, uh, Peter just, he describes it really well as to how he was feeling and, and that, that adrenaline rush you get, that one gets anyways, I've never experienced it, but that one gets in, in a circumstance like that. I don't think most people have had, even in modern, more modern conflicts past, you know, after the Gulf, first Gulf War, you don't really see like, I guess Western armies, you don't hear stories of like, Wanna, like you, there are a few from Afghanistan and Iraq, global war on terror, where guys are like right up against each other. But if you see the guy, the white of the guy's eyes as he throws a grenade at you and you drop him, right? Like that's yeah. There are a few stories like that, but typically, um, Fallujah must have Fallujah had some, and stuff. Had but they, they they typically are followed up with like a Medal of Honor being awarded. Yeah, right. They're not common and they're rather extreme. And this was his first firefight in what was considered at the time relative to everything else happening in the world and relative to the Korean War that happened just before this and the Malay emergency this was considered relatively low key and it was uh, it was Buddy throwing a grenade at him and yeah in, at, at night too let's not forget yeah this is him going back and looking at the scene yeah next because he mentions earlier I didn't read it but he mentions that the Arabs always took the Arab guerrillas always took their dead with them Exactly. So, so he yeah. just sees... Now, he knows he killed this guy because he saw him go down like like a... Like fall like a... Like a camel in the desert. That's a terrible <laughs> metaphor. Anyway, he sees him go down like a nine pin yeah. in the thing. And he finds like all the blood and viscera and all that nasty stuff the next morning. So he knows he killed this guy, but like the Arabs removed the body. Yeah, because in Islam there's a thing you got to bury in 24 hours. So they're like, yeah. we'll always, even if we take more casualties, like we'll always, we'll always bury our dead. So mm -hmm. that was something, and uh, it, it's his, it's his, he he loves it, and he he really beats Glasgow. 
Yeah. For sure. It wasn't all uh, death and doom and gloom. There were lighter moments, as as Peter does mention. They're professional soldiers. At the end of the day, they're still soldiers. Much of our language training was done in laboratories wearing headsets with tape machines and repeating Bill Wajan lessons into black mesh-covered microphones. This was new at the leading edge of technology and language training in those days, and the instructor, hard-bidden though he was, would have been appalled to see his atap- see us adapting his shiny electronics to settle the winner of a farting competition. Ken Cotter and Jake Alsop spent days eating nothing but peas and cabbage, and then one night, quite sober, we gathered round a microphone in the language lab to hear and witness the winning effort. The decimal level was registered, the tape machine dial is bare arse. Ken made a splendid contribution to science. These were real professionals. Jake was not to be outdone. He dropped his trousers, strained to swing the needle further, and shat all over the microphone. <laughs> so, they get the... Yeah, bear in mind, this is like the early 60s. They, they It's the first time there's like tape recorders and stuff that can record decibels. This is completely new tech. It's no. cutting edge. In fact, probably in the civilian market, this doesn't exist yet. This oh. is like government secret. When tech. I was a kid, I my dad gave me a little tape recorder for a while, and I mean, I played with that thing for like months and months. It was, and again, this is like '80s tech, and I was just yeah. enthralled by it. Yeah. So you can only imagine in the yeah. '60s how how amazing it was to have this tech. They're using it for Arab language training. Obviously, they're in an Arab country, so they yeah. have to learn to speak the language, at least to a working proficiency, to deal with locals, uh, to deal with PW, stuff like that. You have to be able to deal with it. You have to know the, sorry. You have to know a little bit of the language. And they use this super high-tech stuff to have a farting contest. Because they can objectively now measure the decibels. There's no, there's no subjectivity to this farting contest. Who can fart louder? Um, and during one, one of these attempts, uh, SAS trooper shits all over this probably thousand dollar equipment to, to measure uh, sound decibels. Oh boy! Who dares wins? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think the guy proved it. Yeah. yeah, I think that, that I hope he won because I, I don't think you can get much further than that. That's really brave because he must have known like this could be dangerous, <laughs> but I'm gonna take a risk. So you you, you can only imagine um, someone was uh, someone was probably pissed off the next morning. Some certain officer, like what the fuck, my mics? <laughs> what did you guys do to them? Yeah. Well, sir, we have a good explanation for this one. <laughs> Anyways, it's um, it's a pretty interesting operation for Peter. Interesting first experience, and he is an SAS guy. He's a special forces. Uh, without a lot of pause, he goes right into his next operation in Borneo, mm-hmm. the Borneo confrontation, and uh, again. Peter has really, really good like introduction sections to each of the conflicts that he finds himself involved in. Very, uh, very Richard Sharpie in, in some ways. There's so many damn conflicts, but we'll let Peter take it away again. Bindu's going to read another excerpt from Peter talking about the Borneo confrontation. The war in Malaya ended in 1960, though terrorism continued sporadically on the Thai border. 
and only two years later the British army was commanded again to fight in the jungle, this time in Borneo. At first, on 8th of December 1962, insurgents tried to overthrow the Sultan of Brunei and were defeated by prompt action, flying troops from Singapore where the British still boasted a headquarters far east. Next, in early 1963, President Sukarno of Indonesia decided to prevent the formation of Malaysia by destabilizing Borneo in a campaign of confrontation. He applied a harsh mix of international political pressure, subversion inside Borneo by the local clandestine communist organization, the CCO, and cross-border attacks to the jungle using his own regular Indonesian troops or CCO terrorists trained and supported by Indonesia. His ultimate aim was nothing short of conquering Borneo. Borneo, in complete contrast to Malaya, was very vulnerable to such attacks. Borneo has a jagged 1,500-mile-long coastline and a 1,000-mile land border with Indonesia, which runs through dense, remote, mountainous jungles. Administratively, the country was divided into penny packets, five divisions in Sarawak, and four residencies in Sabah. People in the small coastal towns were poor and liable to subversion by the communist CCO, while the aboriginal tribes of the interior lived in settlements on rivers, which are the arteries of travel in local tropical forests, where they were easily terrorized and hard to visit, let alone protect. Lastly, the enemy were regular Indonesian troops, properly trained and equipped and supported by an outside power, advantages the Malayan communists never had. So, basically he is saying that they're fighting the Indonesians. And Sukarno was not himself a communist. I don't think he was had a communist government. In fact, I think actually later in history he led quite a ferocious purge of communists inside Indonesia. But he is um, certainly utilizing communists to achieve a sort of national territorial objective here. Yes, yes. Uh, he, it, it, if you look at them on a map, um, modern day Malaysia, I guess, which was British Borneo and Indonesia, it's there's there is this like thousand kilometer border right yeah. in the smack in the middle between them. Well, there's an island that's literally just carved in half, right? Yeah, yeah. So you can you can imagine how hard. Uh, a thousand kilometer border of dense jungle is to police. The Rhodesian border was already quite tricky. Just moving forward, because later uh, Peter does serve in the Rhodesian Special Air Service. Spoiler alert. But jungle. Thousand kilometers of jungle. Like he says, it's very easy for small groups to filter in, harass villages, terrorize them, force them to do things for uh, the benefit of the Indonesians, whether that's report on troop movements, uh, supply them, um, well, forcibly take some of their men and women to become fighters and stuff. It's very, very easy. It's very hard for the uh, Brits to have eyes on this entire territory. And this is, this is something that um, Peter has, ish, has trouble with uh, throughout this engagement. Unlike Aiden, where he was getting into a few firefights, there were there was some, I guess you can say, blue on red confrontation. This was a very um, a very different war. It required a lot more patience, and it it had it it was equally as hard to patrol in the desert for hours as it was in the jungle, but. In the desert, he would encounter the enemy, and here he just... 
There it's a nothing. completely different environment as far yeah. as what line of sight is concerned. Yeah. Yeah. You have, you have no idea what's in front of you. And basically through that entire tour, tour he uh, he doesn't encounter the enemy like once. It's just, it's just a miserable, rainy, wet, humid slog through a giant swampy jungle. He's constantly wet and uh, seldom comes in contact with the enemy. And that's largely because they aren't actually permitted to cross the Indonesian border where a lot of these guys were filtering in from. Right? Once they got up to the border, they'd have to turn around, do a 360, all Same around thing. the fence for a little bit, and then like turn around or zigzag around the border. And uh, even if they had gotten a report from like a village or a tribal headsman or whatever, hey, we just got attacked, we got bumped by some communist guys. They raped some of the women or whatever. They took some of the men back over the border, like over the border. They're headed over the border. By the time the Brits can respond, even if with helicopter-borne troops and stuff in the jungle, um, those guys are gone. Yeah, the same problem in many ways the Americans ran into in Nam, like yeah, on, they, on yeah. a much larger intensity and scale. But yes, same same issue. Like oh, you can't Laos, cross into Cambodia. The north. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, yeah. And you can't cross into China or whatever. It just. Yeah, or you can't cross the North Vietnam or whatever yeah. at different times. Like, it's just really hard to operate when you have a quote unquote neutral place that is your enemy. Yeah, right? that you have to treat a place like it's a neutral country, but it is harboring like enemy elements. Yeah, very very tricky. Um, and then of course there's. Later on, as, as we know, the famously the Salu Scouts and the Rhodesian SAS and the Rhodesian Bush War do cross borders a lot. Not supposed to, and they kind of like deny it a lot of the times that they've ever even crossed borders. But a very similar situation happening in, in Rhodesia after 1975, where all the neighboring countries, with the exception of South Africa, were hosting enemy forces. And they crossed into all of them and just kind of pretended they didn't because there's no other option at yeah. that point, right? When you're completely surrounded and uh, this was kind of what was happening in Borneo and the reason why the Brits, especially when Peter was there, um, didn't have a lot of success was because once they got to that border, they had to like, okay, we're going to we're gonna circle back. We lost them. Yeah. You could be following a track line for 48 hours or something and you're like, we got him, we got him, we got him. He's there. Lay an OP. Uh, lay an ambush. Oh, OP and ambush points are across the border. Turn around, right? Mm -hmm. Peter does eventually um, leave. He actually leaves a little bit earlier during this tour. He goes back yeah. to Aiden to do some more like language training. Well, actually, not language training, uh, translating, because his Arabic is actually pretty decent. Not bad for a Glasgow boy. Um, <laughs> pretty decent Arabic, so they actually sent him back to become a translator for the SAS still operating there. And when he leaves, uh, the war does intensify. And just, just as, this is just an interesting side note that I, I brought up with you yeah. when we we're talking about Borneo. But this was the uh, one of the last. This is the last time actually that a Gurkha of the British Army Gurkha was awarded the Victoria Cross, and it was in this Borneo confrontation. A lot of people don't know; they just assume that history, military history for VCs ends after World War II or the Falklands or whatever, right? But there yeah. was a. There was a VC there in 1965, uh, and that was 
I'm gonna screw this up because it's Nepalese. Rambahadur, Rambahadur Limbu, Rambahadur Limbu VC. On the 21st of November 1965, he was a member of the Second Battalion, 10th Princess Mary's Own Gurkha Rifles. In the Battle of Bao, where he was awarded the well, he was awarded afterwards um, the Victoria Cross for his actions that day. Basically, once Peter leaves, a lot. The British High Command just gives a thumbs up, or Far East Command or whatever. They give the thumbs up to cross the border. Just shh, keep it on the low down, but cross yeah. the border. Keep on tracking these guys and hunt them down. And in fact, not just track them across the border, but let's do a little bit of air recce. Let's let's like do a little bit of long-range recce on the ground. Let's actually find these camps and destroy them across the border. And then when, when asked, like, you guys cross the border, they'll be like, I didn't see a border. Right? Well, pull one of those. Yeah. Pseudo ops. And it's something the Rhodesians perfected. Absolutely. Right? In, yeah. in many ways. But um, the, the, this this mindset already was existing in Borneo. And, and I guess the Commonwealth brain, which kind of brain melded into Rhodesia uh, at the time of UDI. Uh, or actually, not, not UDI. Sorry, op, op Nickel or whatever, which is a little bit later. But, um, like... The Brits, with largely with Gurkha units, started crossing the border uh, very aggressively, and um, yeah, they they did a, they did a lot of damage to these guys because the Indonesians up to this point uh, and the Indonesian communists that had been supported and stuff, they were they had been in these camps largely protected. They're like they can't cross the border. This is a you can't shoot me line. Right, we're gonna cross this line. You can't shoot us anymore. Um, and the British just one day decided to break that rule, and it was a it was a shock to them. And uh, notably at the Battle of Bao, where a gr- uh, basically a platoon strength of Gurkhas came up against a company of Indonesian infantry. As Peter mentions, they're all well trained and stuff. They bumped these Gurkhas, and it was there that Limbu VC. Uh, saw two of his buddies get mortally wounded and picked up a Bren gun and, well, killed a bunch of Indonesians. And so he dragged his two buddies out. Unfortunately, they they pass away, but he kills. He takes a lot of Indonesians with them. At least 20 Indonesians are killed at the cost of two Gurkhas several wounded. Uh, and Limbu is awarded the Victoria Cross. And he's still alive, still kicking at the time of this podcast. Uh, the last living Gurkha recipient of the Victoria Cross, which is which is pretty interesting. Those last VC was awarded there, and when VC is awarded, what that means is uh, the op tempo has gone up. <laughs> Something is going on when VCs are being awarded, right? So, anyways, there you go, guys. You guys get uh, two men among men stories for the price of one. You guys get a mini one in your. Um, Aiden and Borneo are done, and Peter. Peter obviously hears about this. He, he does make mention of the Gurkhas and stuff in the book. But he does have to go back home, back to Hereford, back to Garrison to become a Garrison soldier. Which, I'm going to put it as gently as I can, doesn't go as well as his operational time. He's a fighting man. Yeah, he is very much a man of action. Yeah. From his days in Glasgow, carrying that little... Not, maybe not little, that long bayonet yeah. <laughs> and whacking people with it to 
shooting the first guy in Aiden to doing those long range patrols in Borneo in the jungles of Borneo he is uh, he doesn't like to sit when he, when, he, when he sits around and he sits around in a pub he will get into a fight at least in this stage in his life yeah and um, well it, it, it's just it's not a good environment for him it's not a good environment and the peacetime army starts to tick him off because the SAS really and he mentions it in the book again we're not going to read the exact excerpt because there's a long explanation about this but the SAS does not want to get disbanded again because what happened after World War II is well there's no Nazis and there's no there's no Japs to kill anymore we don't need you we have the infantry we have the air force we have the navy we have the artillery you know yeah. we have the we have the tanks we have, we have armored units now. Like, we don't we don't need commandos. There isn't going to be a massive-scale war, and the SAS are disbanded because you guys are a bunch of cowboys that play by your own rules, that wear your own uniforms, that do your own things, that... Yeah. that uh, the army has never... No army has ever looked particularly fondly on irregular units. Exactly, and they were very irregular. Yeah. Right? The, the, the special force... Like, the modern special forces unit mindset or role hadn't been fully matured so to speak right it was just like you're you guys are like amateurs and and even then like even with modern special forces like recently the the, the founder of the seal team six passed away and i mean he was an absolute marsenko like, yeah yeah hellraiser you know thumb in the nose at command like yeah red he cell. was very irregular read red cell we'll have to do red cell we will have to read red cell yeah look at that guys Three men among men. Yeah. In one podcast. So, anyways, I mean, Peter just his his story just ropes in so many things, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the the SAS has to justify its experience because they've been disbanded before and they don't want it to happen again. And guys like Peter that are causing mayhem, and I'm not going to spoil this story because you guys have to read it, but he punches a bunch of French paratroopers in the face. Several French paratroopers in the face on because they're making fun of British troops at Arnhem, like the paratroopers that died in Arnhem. So he obviously takes offense to that because it's yeah. not British. And he punches them out, and then the cops get called. <laughs> and a cop draws a gun on him. He disarms the, <laughs> the cop and beats the shit out of the cop, and then like gets like doggy piled basically by an army of French police and it's not it's not a good look because he's in full uniform yeah he's on official duties he's actually there for like a parachute display team or something and he's just wherever he goes either bad luck or bad tempers follow a guy like that is not really welcome into this peacetime SAS it's like we understand you've been operational well actually they don't some of the new officers don't understand that because they're just trying to justify the ex- existence of the unit. They're just like, hey, like, you can't be doing this because we need to exist. We don't give a shit what you did during operations, right? You can't do shit like this. After um, one unfortunate fight, he actually gets kicked out of the SAS. And it's not even a major fight. It's not even no. this this French police. It's incident. like a five second like it's just like punch up with another well, SAS. It's so yeah, he gets an argue with another SAS man, not a guy, not another regiment, a guy that's actually bigger than him, and uh, 
instead of fighting in the pub, they do the mature thing and they go in the parking lot and fight. Yeah. That's that's some mature... I I mean, they should have given him some props for that. But again, he already had a reputation. Yeah. And this is just the last straw. And they're just like, we're we're putting you... You are now being sent back to the fucking parachute regiment, which he spent like no time in previously, right? He went like, he just did all his training and was a special forces guy right away. We're sending you to basically a regular unit. Now, an elite unit, but still like a regular unit. Yeah. Right? A regular airborne unit. And um, and your career is over. Fuck you, basically, was what, what they yeah. told him. Peter is not happy with this, obviously, but he, he tries to take it in stride. Uh, he actually does a leadership course, and there's some very interesting leadership principles um, that... Uh, that we're going to read here that he... Well, there's, there's two versions of them. We'll yeah. read both versions. and <laughs> I like both versions, actually. They're pretty good. But um, it's it's uh, it's like... We'll read both versions of them. They're both pretty good. Uh, but these principles really become important to, well, what happens to Peter after his official military career, at least in the British Army. The course taught us about everything, starting with the fundamentals, the principles of war. The age-old cynicism of the British other ranks, often useful in the hardship of war, had provided me with four short, unofficial principles so far. Slaughter of the fighting men, search for the scapegoats, punishment of the innocent, decoration of the (laughs) non-participants. Now, I learned the official Ministry of Defense principles, and I will repeat them here as I have found them invaluable since. There are nine as follows. Maintenance of morale. Offensive action. Surprise. Security. Concentration of force. Economy of effort. Flexibility. Cooperation. Administration. Above these is the master principle. The selection and maintenance of the aim. These principles uh, kind of guide him to this junior leadership course that he takes. He becomes an NCO, a sergeant in the uh, parachute regiment. He actually becomes an infantry instructor and really utilizes these principles as he's a develop develop his own leadership skills, especially when he's training guys. But he knows like he's a fighter. He's not there to just. He's only I think to, he's in his late. 20s at this point. He's not an old fart. Yeah, he's not ready to like settle down and become just a career officer. Exactly. Yeah, or or an, an instructor. NCO. Yeah. Yeah. He's he wants to get back out there and he's just like this 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 is great. I appreciate this this ex- learning experience and he does learn a lot. Uh, and it's quite formative. But again, for for his early career, but he he wants more. So after nine years in the British Army, he finishes up this contract teaching this course and um, this uh, I think op- uh, infantry officer course that he instructs on in addition to some other courses and stuff that he does for professional development he's just like yeah, I'm, I'm out of here because there's no more there's no more ops I'm not getting back in the uh, British SAS again this is not going to go well if I try um, I have a reputation and I'm out and uh, to, to, to put it Bluntly, like civilian life is not nice. It's it's very cathartic for him. 
I'm, we're we're not gonna cathartic. I think chaotic is the word. No, no, it's a bit of both because there's like cathartic means like relaxing. Yeah, no, I'm because like he's bored. Yeah, he's bored. So no, I'd I'd argue, I'd argue, still cathartic. There, there are moments of chaos. Um, but I'll I'll get into in a sec. But no, no, this is the like my take on it. You can disagree in a sec here, but like basically, he gets a job as a oil oil rig guy. In addition to a few other gigs and stuff that like short jobs. Um, but it's, it's boring, right? And, uh, like he has to deal, he's married at this point, his first marriage. And it's not, it it just, it just isn't going well. And he's not, it's not engaging him in the way that the military career did. He's has his, his first son is born at this time, right? He's a father now, but it's just nothing matches patrolling through the deserts of Aden or the jungles of Borneo. Well, that's what I mean. What are you saying is cathartic? Yeah, that. that oh, okay. Sorry, I I thought I thought you were saying that civilian life was cathartic to Peter, and I was like, I don't think that's not what I get from reading No Mean Soldier. Civilian life was cathartic. Yeah, I don't get that from him. Well, I I guess okay. What what did you get? Well, I got from him that at least back like less so obviously later in the yeah. book, but at this age. Peter was just a guy who just wanted to get back out there on operation. Like, he did not like yeah. hanging around in a base. He did not really like civilian life. He felt, like, kind of, maybe not lost, but kind of, like, just there wasn't, like, the purpose there. I got cathartic vibes. Okay, I did <laughs> not, but I we did. will agree to disagree. We'll agree to disagree. But anyways, um, there is chaos, though, as you, as you mentioned. There is there is some, there are moments of chaos. And uh, there's a woman we're not, I mean, Peter names her, like, he really names and shames her, but there's a woman that basically he he starts he has a like he's like he says he's ashamed to say it, but he had an affair with a woman while he was married. Just because who the heck who who the heck can explain stuff like that, right? It's just maybe he's an adrenaline junkie. He wants more risk, um, and this woman is actually like vi- like really violent and. If anyone's ever been in like a super toxic relationship, and you'll know what I mean by this, but she knows how to like push people's buttons. She knew what every single one of Peter's buttons were, and she pushed them every time to be like, "Oh, I love you know, like BPD basically, just super. I love you, but I fucking hate you at the same time." Uh, anybody that's ever been in a again divorced, bad relationship, abusive, especially an abusive or toxic relationship. You'll know exactly what he's talking about, the way he writes about it, and uh, this this woman basically starts fights with him, calls the cops, and he gets like you know two months or three months in jail for assault. Um, his wife divorces him during this period because he, and every time he gets back out to, out of jail, despite now he's been divorced, even though he's a kid and stuff, he keeps going back to this woman. And well, I, I will probably ask Peter about it because it's a it's a very personal. It's man. a very numb. It's a, yeah, it's a very personal point. He does bring it up in the book, um, but it it created a lot of chaos in his life, and he gets sent to jail a few times, civilian jail, because he's now out out of the military. Um, he's just Joe Blow. And ever the other thing he mentions is people around him are really lazy at work. Whenever he's working, they're not that they don't have to drive. 
of the SAS man or the paratrooper, right? He's just like, everyone's just lazy. I work hard and, and he still plays hard. And unfortunately it gets, it gets him sent to jail. There's a lot of domestic uh, violence incidents, him punching doors and stuff. And then cops are called and he's arrested and he's just, he's in and out of jail multiple times. And, uh, in, he kind of has an epiphany about his own character in jail, right? Um, because he recognizes a lot of his own failings as, as a fighter. Uh, he has to kind of calm things down in his mind and, and focus and find find focus and find purpose and all that. Uh, there's, there's an interesting anecdote where he's he's taken calligraphy classes in jail to just kind of help him meditate and calm down as as these things are happening in his life. So he learns how to like do, you know, really pretty handwriting. His handwriting's so good that a bunch of the other prisoners actually ask him to like <laughs> write letters home for them because his handwriting is so good so they can <laughs> write through their wives or whatever that, you know, I'm I'm learning so much in prison. And one of them, one of the prisoners is like, you know, my dearest darling, my dearest love, my dearest wife, I wish to let you know you are my dearest. And he keeps using, like, the word dearest darling or whatever, like, 30 times. And Peter's writing, scribing this out for this guy. And he's like, bro, I think she gets the fucking point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, she, you, she, she is dear to you. She gets it. What do you want me to say? Anyways, my dear, I have been taking calligraphy lessons. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, he's just, he's meeting these characters in jail. He's, like, real screw-ups. And he's, yeah. he's just, like... No, this this isn't the, the this is a, I don't want to end up like this. I guess. Yeah. Um. And there's a very dramatic moment where he exits prison, and and of course is this the the toxic girlfriend or whatever is out to meet him, and uh, she's walk she's wearing like a dress that she knows he really likes, like just to kind of manipulate him, and she's walking yeah. in a way that is like provocative. And uh, he does the Sigma male and walks in the other fucking direction. Based. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a moment, man. It's, it's yeah. Seriously, it's a moment for anybody that's ever been in that situation. So it can happen to anybody, even the no mean soldier yeah. himself. Um, so it was, it, was, it was really well written. It's like, even if you just read that part of the book, I don't know. I like the military history stuff, but that was really... Yeah, no, I, I liked, it was the, really I liked the way he's uh, described that. It was, yeah. it was kind of almost like something out of... I don't want to say drama, because that like, makes it sound almost cheap and like fake. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah, But he, he, it was something like a very good... like sort of emotional like yeah. story. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't reveal like too too many details, but he does acknowledge his like f- different failings and stuff yeah. as as like a father or family man and um and kind of like just he writes about the emotions rather than like the the events. Right? Yeah. And it's it's really well done. So what is that purpose for him now he's finally after basically 2 years in and out of jail and stuff and getting divorced and all this what what is what is life for Peter what is his purpose well it's obviously to be a professional soldier he wants to get back out there like you said he gets a very strange opportunity right out of jail after two years um, from a, a guy by the name of John Banks now John Banks kind of represented himself as this 
badass private proto private military company dude he was connected to david sterling the founder of the original british special air service like the, the original one in world war Two, mm-hmm. right uh who was still alive at this time and kind of he had formed several security companies because he was worried because he saw this like peacetime thing happening with the british army and he thought the british empire was collapsing and he was going to do what he could with his skill set his connections, his former SAS guys, to do what they can to exercise a, like a hard power, yeah, without officially being part of the British government, but exercise hard power. Like we're going to train different armies. We're going to train you as uh, as PMCs rather as basically mercenaries rather than or serve as mercenaries rather than like be official like a British army deployment. But emphasize we are British and we are helping you. Yeah, help you know. Our government is your friend, kind of deal. Kind of perpetuate a soft empire. Yeah, if if that makes any sense. Was were these guys in any way connected to the LEL League of Empire Loyalists at all? That you know of? Not that I'm. That was a political organization who was hell bent on preserving the British Empire. Yeah, no, they. But they were more in like government. They were like a. They're basically like a further right wing of the Tory Party. yeah, I don't know if they. I don't know if they yeah. had any connections to these guys. They certainly no, no, no. no. This, yeah. I, I, at least I, not that I'm aware of. But yeah, it was more of a soft power thing. It, mm-hmm. They didn't want to reform the British Empire. I don't think that was Sterling's goal. He's just he was just concerned that geopolitically, uh, British influence was waning. Yeah, and I guess he wanted to make some money too while yeah. doing this. Right? Let's let's. He did start a company, so. Um, and and now not not he didn't start this specific one, but um, John Banks was involved in a company called uh, Security Advisory Services. Yes, yes. <laughs> I know. Right? It's just like, <laughs> we're from the British Security Advisory Services, like the SAS. Yeah, like yeah, it's just yeah. it's just like a meme. Anyways, this is like very early private military PMC stuff. Like it's not, yeah. It's very rudimentary. I don't think Sterling even had an idea what he was, the animal he was creating. Yeah. Um, if only he was alive to see, like, the, the Blackwater contracts or the Halliburton or... Or, uh, or executive like, outcomes. Or, or Executive outcomes or whatever. Like, he'd be like, holy shit, that's fucking crazy. Because, like, they yeah. were very rudimentary. Yeah. That's how ghetto they were. They were like, we're not the... We're the security advisory service. So you can't be any more yeah. obvious. <laughs> like, yeah. So he um, he ends up working for this company, the Security Advisory Services. Yeah, after say, meeting yes. this, yeah, after meeting this guy named John Banks, who represents himself again as a as a Billy badass, but in reality he was just this washout paratrooper who had been kicked out of two commando, or sorry, not two commando, uh, two two para, so second parachute reg, second battalion parachute regiment. He'd been kicked out for driving without insurance, which is a not very Billy badass way of being. No, yeah. He literally got kicked out for driving a car without insurance. Yeah. I think it was a military vehicle, though, but, like, it's yeah, just like. But yeah, if you're going to get not kicked Billy out, badass. you want to take a swing at your commanding officers. Yeah, do the MacLeese thing, like, fight some French cops, disarm one of them, yeah. disarm their SMG, hit him with his SMG, and get jumped yeah. by 10 other French cops. Like, that's Billy badass. But this guy was, mm-hmm. just, a, was just a bit of a dope. Um, he was a qualified paratrooper but he was a bit who the heck knows 
what this what was going through this man mind man's mind and God bless him if he's still alive but he recruits Peter into uh, these the, the the security advisory services in addition to a bunch of other weird companies that have different names that are all like basically names of like regiments but like yeah. weird abbreviations and stuff it's all very goofy at this point and there's a there's a bunch of like different jobs. One of them actually involves him going to Rhodesia at this early stage to fight Ian Smith's government, which is really bizarre. But yeah. They are going to send white mercenaries to go to, I think it was, not Zambia. Um, oh shit, it might have been Zambia or some stupid... Yeah, to train like proto-Zanla yeah, yeah. forces. Yeah, yeah, to train proto-Zanla forces and then like go in there and sweep through Rhodesia like fi- like my course 5 commando like yeah. it was really ghetto and stupid and yeah. it got exposed in the media yeah. uh, and uh, they even say like a weird thing like they get them all together in a room and he says something like anyone who has a problem with fighting against the white man in Rhodesia leave now and like one or two guys like yeah. walk out it's just like <laughs> alright the rest of you we're gonna take down Ian Smith's government like yeah it's just it's really weird, yeah. right? And it was clearly like an MI6 kind of job. Yeah. It was, but it was like botched, and it just it got leaked to the media because like oh, probably yeah. half the people there were journalists wondering what the heck this was. So it got leaked to the I'd media. I'd be amazed if one of them wasn't like Rhodesian intelligence. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was just a disaster. So um, this, this op never happened. And there's all these like weird ops that he keeps getting called up for, basically, because they know he's got... He's got the background and he's very bored. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, and he could use the he could use the money. So, um, f- finally, uh, he gets a, and it's very strange, but he gets a phone call randomly, and they ask for a Nick Hall. Is this Major Nick Hall? And he's like, No, this is Peter. And they just hang up. Yeah. It's like what the fuck? Whatever. He ignores the call. He gets a call again, and it's just like. Is it is this Nick Hall <laughs> again? Like like a, few, a little bit later, and he's just like, yes, like yeah, sure, because he keeps getting these weird calls, and he's, and they're just like, okay, meet us here. So he shows up, and Nick Hall is there. <laughs> it's just a really weird. He's like, what is this cloak and dagger shit, right? Yeah. Like, and the guy's like, we have a job, um, and it is it is Angola. It is Angola where. Um, This is actually where we began our uh, our fucking intro to this podcast. To circle all the way back now, that quote dealt with the uh, the 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 mercenary trials affair. It was an incident in Angola where a bunch of mercenaries that were British sub citizens were executed by a bunch of other British and American mercenaries. Like, white mercenaries executing other white mercenaries over a pretty weird insubordination. A weird blue-on-blue incident unfolded. And uh, these guys were murdered. Their murder paved the way for more... Well, they were executed... Like, they were... It was like a kangaroo court. They were executed by this guy by the name of Costas Giorgio, also known as Colonel Tony Callan, a uh, pretty notorious figure. And 
basically, like, by, by killing white people, unfortunately, this is fucking Africa, by killing, like, white British subjects and citizens, he exposed, this event exposed the murder of, like, hundreds of black Angolans. That Tony and this guy that you mentioned, Shotgun Charlie, um, who was another, like, British paratrooper guy who was just a complete psychopath yeah. uh, had, had killed they had like massacred hundreds of random soldiers and civilians under their own uh, on their own side mind you yeah this no this like, this isn't this is this this was some lord of the flies shit yeah that's right? one of the things interesting reading it like i read up a bit to see if there was any like sort of if it was like sort of a prejudicial thing but no it just seems no, like just, they're just insane they're psychopaths yeah, there's like no, these dudes <laughs> Yeah, it didn't make any sense. Yeah, these dudes are just, like, killing people left and right, both white and black. Like, it's... Yeah. And, um... Anyways, uh, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into yeah. it. Yeah. Um, we are circling back now to that original quote, and uh, we're going to get into some some fun things here. So, uh, again, Peter... So, Peter is invited to become a mercenary, an officer, basically. He's actually made a captain, because they're so impressed with him. This Major Nick Hall, who is also... Another parachute trooper dropout for um, he does something stupid too and gets kicked out of the parachute regiment. Uh, he's a bit of a dope. He calls himself a major when he was actually just like a corporal, right? I actually no, I don't. Th- I think he was only like a private. He never even was got promoted at any point, from what I understand. He, he made himself a major. He um, he spent some time in a military prison, I think. So he like acted like an officer. Anyways. Uh, he he recruits Peter to fight in Angola, which is a really, really convoluted conflict and complex and hard to explain. So thank God again for Peter putting the uh, the caveats and the explanation in. I'll let you take it away. On 10th of November, 1975, the Portuguese had announced that they were leaving Angola after five centuries of colonialist rule. On the same day, two liberation movements fought a battle 25 miles outside the capital, Luanda, Holden Roberto, the leader of the FNLA, was defeated by the Marxist troops of the MPLA, the People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola. So it was the communist-backed MPLA who celebrated Independence Day in Luanda, while Holden Roberto retired to Ambrzet, a hundred miles up the coast. In the south was another group, UNITA, the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, led by the bearded Jonas Savimbi, who was supported by South Africa. The USSR then stepped in to bolster the MPLA. First advisors arrived in Luanda. Then Fidel Castro willingly supplied thousands of his black Cuban soldiers, who were a nuisance to him in Cuba at the time. Most important, Russia supplied plenty of arms, the ubiquitous AK assault rifle, T-34 and T-54 tanks, and artillery in the form of mobile 122mm cat. Katyushka rockets, known in the Second World War as Stalin's organs, because of the horrendous noise they made when fired. The massive effort shocked the United States, which tried to solve the problem with money. President Ford agreed to allocate $32 million to prevent Angola becoming communist. The fund was managed by a handful of CIA agents, but the reaction was too late and produced, produced too little on the ground where it mattered, facing the reality of the MPLA. African armies usually fight each other with the minimum martial contact, moving from town to town, terrifying the opposition with propaganda. When the attack comes, resistance is slight because most of the enemy have run away. Those foolish enough to stay can expect little mercy. 
The hallmark of African wars is slaughter. I've heard it was said that 90% of casualties are the result of massacres and atrocities, mostly after the fighting is over. And after my time in Africa, I can believe it. This is certainly true in Angola. Long story short, the Portuguese leave after fighting sort of a, an anti-colonial insurgency for, I think, about a decade and a half yep. at this point. Um, and they leave in 1975. The Carnation Revolution happened, I think, two years prior. I think it's 74. 74, yeah. Like so right, a year like right before, like a year before. A year prior. So the Estado Novo government has collapsed yep. and um, Portuguese people are showing very little interest in keeping the empire, so they pull out. Uh, and Angola just collapses in this brutal three-way civil war between yeah. the American Anglo-American-backed FNLA, the communist-backed MPLA, and the South African-backed UNETA, which if yeah. you've played Call of Duty Black Ops yeah, 2, you will know Joseph Zavimbi. So all these groups had been fighting the Portuguese. They were all motivated, ready to go. Well, maybe not the FNLA. They were... Uh, they were messed up. <laughs> they were very messed up. Of all the three groups, the one that Peter unfortunately ends up joining here is the most messed up one under the command of uh, Holden Roberto. He, I mean, you can read about him from any other source, but from Peter's account, having met the man a few times, he was a bit of a meek, timid, indecisive dude. Not the guy you want running a guerrilla army. No. Yeah. He was not particularly bombastic, which is all right to some extent, but he was just he was just too, I guess, weak-willed to to exercise his own judgment. He was uh, there's a few moments where he's contradicted by the white mercenaries that work for him that like yell at him, like mm-hmm. he's like they're like he's like a misbehaving child. And he, he's the paymaster, technically. Well, I mean, the U.S. government, the State Department is the paymaster at the end of the day. The CIA was funding them. But it was... Uh, he did not have good command and control over this unit. And he shows up right away and he meets Colonel Callan, uh, this guy named Costas Giorgio, who was a Cypriot-born British soldier in the Parachute Regiment. He was a corporal. And uh, while serving in Northern Ireland... Um, he he did a really stupid thing while serving there in Northern Ireland while wearing his army uniform and his paratrooper maroon beret and his corporal stripes his denizen smock right in an army vehicle with another army guy robbed a store <laughs> and uh, he thought in his infinite wisdom he thought because the IRA was known to like rob um, like loyalist stores not you don't kill anybody you show up just with guns just shoot the roof and do a whole falling down sequence and then take some money he robs his store thinking like the Northern Irish police are so overstretched they're never gonna believe that like two British soldiers just walked in here and rob the place. Like, they're not going to believe it. I didn't think the IRA in uniform... So he literally showed up wearing just... He was, like, on duty, too, with a few other guys, and then just robbed the store. Um, and they got caught immediately, because a guy called the cops and was like, yeah, I saw their license plate number. They found him still, like, there with the money in the car, and they, they, they immediately arrested him. He was unceremoniously booted from the army. 
and with the big chip on his shoulder, declared himself a colonel of the FNLA, went to Angola, and um, by the time Peter arrived, he was really running like this this Lord of the Fly situation. Yeah. And Peter Peter describes him. Peter describes him in one sentence, which I'm just going to quote yeah. verbatim. He was totally unpredictable, manic, and brutal. Now, a lot of mercenaries... The, the, the very term has kind of a negative connotation. Largely because of this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well I, well, I was about to get that. In a lot of ways, you and I have had this discussion before. PMCs and sometimes do get a bad rap. Yeah. A lot of them are ex-soldiers yeah. who conduct themselves fairly professionally. But you also do get complete and utter wackos, where, which is why there is this Hollywood stereotype of mercenaries as like the bad guys in all these movies. Colonel Callan was was a colonel quote unquote Colonel Callan. He he also gave yeah. a fake name when he showed up to Angola. Was a was a total psycho. He misrepresented he said he was like an officer of the British yeah. Army and all this stuff when he showed up. So they made him a colonel right away. Uh, by the time Peter arrived, like everybody there was starving. The 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 white mercenaries in command were completely like schizophrenic and paranoid and we're yelling at them as they're getting off the bus, and it's like, dude, we're like all paid professional soldiers to be here. Mm-hmm. This isn't boot camp. Yeah. Like, we, we've all had some trigger time, my friend. Yeah. And Peter literally has to pull, like, this discount officer guy aside, this, like, lieutenant, um, and be like, hey, man, like, some of these guys here were, like, former sergeant majors and stuff. Like, you gotta, you gotta calm down. <laughs> like, we, we know what we're doing, right? We're ready to do the job, and... And yeah, Peter looks around and just everybody's starving. All the blacks are starving. The white mercenaries are barely starving. And Peter's like, man, there must be no food. And then he literally finds a giant warehouse full of food. And he's just like, why are we starving? And then he notices like the 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 the, the FNLA they like, barely have uniforms. The guys are walking around their underwear with AKs. And he's like, and he finds a warehouse full of uniforms in the same like complex and compound. Um, and he's just super confused. He's just like, who's giving orders around here? And it just, it's nobody. Um, so he starts, like, helping out where he can. And uh, he gains the respect, to some extent, of, of Colonel Callan, this, this kind of crazy schizophrenic <laughs> Greek uh, paratrooper washout bank robber, or sorry, store burglar or whatever you want to yeah. call him. And... Um, he gets actually he gets his own little villa basically his own little compound where he becomes a commandante right and uh, the first thing he does is he starts to distribute food to people which immediately like incredibly I mean this is from his British army leadership experience he's able to like figure out a sequence where the food can be distributed to the civilians and the soldiers equally in this like village and compound and uh, it just boosts morale like no tomorrow right Mm -hmm. he deals there's local gendarmes or police basically paramilitary police that he deals with corrupt ones in a typical African fashion he knocks the shit out of them for like stealing things from the civilians and the civilians are all like on his side um and he starts drilling these guys on infantry tactics like because we're like we have a fight the the uh the uh MPLA are right on our doorstep like he has all these intelligence reports and they come from all over the place because the situation's a mess and he's his first time he's in like a serious serious leadership role and it's it's probably the biggest leadership role he's ever taken uh, in his life until 
far later on in Colombia. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a this is pretty significant. It's hundreds of people. He's like managing. All of a sudden, he's thrust into it because um, he is one of the most experienced mercenaries there of this batch of British dudes that arrive. He he uh, he immediately starts drilling these guys, but it's it's kind of too little, too late. The MPLA make their make their big start making their pushes, and at the same time, an incident happens where a group of British mercenaries, like a third batch, show up to Angola. Same thing as Peter. They have like no. They're given like very little context. They're just armed, and they're like told, "Don't go like patrol or something." Those are basically like almost verbatim the orders: go patrol or something. Yeah. And it's just like what? Like we thought we'd be like, whether it be like an orientation, and we get like a. So they're completely confused, and they're doing this like patrol. Uh, and one of uh, a colonel, one of Colonel Callan's lackeys, is driving a jeep in the middle of the night without telling anybody, and the, this patrol of these brand new dudes that had showed up, um, they see this Jeep and they think it's MPLA, so they light up this Jeep, they actually fire an RPG at it. Uh, the Jeep ama amazingly is able to turn back around, go back to the compound, report this. Uh, the mercenaries, these, these guys, this fresh group that had just shown up, 13 dudes are told, like, you guys are being court-martialed right now for this blue-on-blue, -blue, this friendly fire incident. Right, and we just we don't know what the hell happened and all this stuff. And and Colonel Callan actually comes out with a handgun and asks, "Who the fuck fired the RPG?" And it's very dramatic. So now Peter's not there because Peter's in the, uh, his own little world right now. Yeah. Still, he is. He's completely unaware of this. And um, one of the guys steps up. One of the British dudes steps up and says, "Like, yeah, it was me, sir. I shot the RPG. I'm sorry." And Callan shoots the guy three times in the face, right then and there. The other dudes are horrified. Um, they're all tied up and stuff, and basically they're told they're loaded onto a truck. A bunch of the um, American and British mercenaries, who are Colonel Callan's lackeys, volunteer to be in a firing party uh, to execute these guys. They make them run across a field and they gun them down, every single one. And uh, much later on, when Peter discovers their bodies, uh, they, they, like they were torn to shreds. They were shot point blank with machine guns. They, they didn't have a chance to get away. Yeah. Um, there was not a lot left of them. And this is like two or three days later. It was just limbs and pieces. Mm -hmm. So it was it was gnarly. And uh, Peter learns about this incident as like guys are defecting from Colonel Callan, and there's like yeah. guys that look like they've seen ghosts. He's like, what the fuck's happening? Yeah. He thinks it's an MPLA attack. It is like no like. Callan's losing his mind. Yeah. And also, Callan, right away, right after this, he disappears. Yeah. He takes a jeep, he says, I'm going on a, recon, a recce patrol, and he just disappears and leaves the whole, like, army and stuff there. And, he's, and So Peter's like, fuck. So he has to go back and take charge of this place. Uh, he knows the MPLA has, like, tanks and stuff. So he's like, okay, we have, like, armored support arriving and all this stuff. And um, the, the quote we read, actually, at the beginning of this podcast, basically, was when he confronts the guys in the firing squad because he finds them yeah. right uh, and they are and he and they're eventually all executed basically yeah all so basically the the guys who had done this court martial and killed all these they, they all get executed stuff are themselves executed by the other mercs right yeah yeah, yeah. and with actually uh, some of them are like colonel callan way later he's actually captured by the mpla yeah. uh, with a few other dudes who are not all of them were in the firing party but um 
a, a good number of them were, and they're all executed. Two of the guys in the firing party actually got away, scot free. Mm-hmm. That Peter names, and he's like, they they got away. Yeah, they're still out there somewhere. Yeah, but uh, it was it was it was a mess, and yeah. he's just like, holy shit, like. What? And all of a sudden, two tanks roll through the front gates. They actually they roll so fast they break through the front gates, and he thinks it's the MPLA. It's all over, and he sees. The guys open up the hatches, and there's these two little, like, T-26, like, Soviet... Or T, is it T-70? T-70, yeah. The T-70 light tanks. There's two guys that pop out of the tanks, and he sees their uh, FNLA, and he's like, oh, thank God. The guys jump out of the tanks, and maybe rip off their uniforms and desert into the jungle. <laughs> like, he, this all happens in the span of, like, two minutes, and he's just like, Wow. Yeah. We just lost our armored support. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So he's these like two tanks there, and everyone's just confused. So he um, he has no choice but to um, f- uh, fight this fighting withdrawal out of the fucking country towards Zaire because it's yeah. all coming to an end. Uh, but also, just a quick antidote before before we move on to the the, the final quote here. Um, uh, or actually, there's there's two final quotes that we want to do, but uh, he has to fight this fighting. Get back, go on this fighting retreat. He has to go on this fighting retreat towards Zaire, right, which is formerly Congo, mm-hmm. and he's doing this with the remnants of an army, if you can even call it that, a bunch of really scared white mercenaries, and himself, and Holden Roberto. Um. And Roberto's like twenty black bodyguards at yeah, this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it's just it's a mess, and yeah. uh, all because guys like Colonel Callan and, and Shotgun Charlie. And this is the antidote I wanted to tell Shotgun Charlie. Uh, are we going to read it? Like, you know, I will just describe. We'll just describe. Yeah, it. So basically, quick. Colonel Callan's one of his lackeys was a guy named Shotgun Charlie, and he once said, "Like Charlie, come over. I want to test your shotgun." He grabs the shotgun. He calls over a random one of his own black troops. One of his own troops. Yeah. Tells him to open his mouth, and he literally just puts the shotgun in his mouth and blows his head clean off. Yeah, they just, like, like, giggle. And Callan did this to, like, everybody. Like, his own black troops, random black civilians, and, you know, later to his own white mercenaries after the RPG incident. So, Callan was just this complete psychopath who had no respect for human life and should never have he shouldn't have been running a hot dog stand let alone like an army yeah there was the the British government when he was on trial made very little effort to try to get him out even though he was still a British citizen they're just like he's fucked this is this is he is the kind of just insane cuckoo banana bird that is the reason why a lot of mercenaries have like the word mercenary has a really shady like sort of connotation because of guys like him yeah so, yeah, he literally, just to test his shotgun, called one of his own men over and shot him. We don't know how many blacks they ended up killing. Like I said, it's very... It's, yeah, it's P- all Peter very says murky. it's probably around, like, a, f- like a few hundred. A hundred to two hundred yeah. or something. Like could, it, be like, could be more. Could be more. Because he wasn't yeah. there. Yeah. Right? He... And, uh, yeah. it, and again, these are yeah. people shot, like, literally just for fun or to test yeah. weapons or, like, for minor insubordination, like, you didn't salute properly. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was like, a lot of you didn't salute properly and stuff. So yeah. the, the fact that this was happening made a lot of the 
white mercenaries already really uneasy because he he developed almost this clique of lackeys yeah. that were willing to do this. They and were a, willing and a, to like put up with the psychopath and, 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 and a group of guys. Yeah, and a group of guys that were still with him that were just kind of. T- trying their best to turn a blind eye to it but the moment those the 13 guys were executed they're like ah, I'm not yeah. I'm not sticking around for this mm. shit because then it was the them yeah. in the crosshairs yeah. yeah it was yeah it, it crossed the line for them and yeah. uh, Peter no idea he just yeah he just had it like a hundred people telling him all these stories and he's like what yeah <laughs> what do you mean he killed who is he what yeah. our guys he killed our why what yeah but the MPLA are like yeah like attacking us right now, like yeah. So, um, this this was uh, the situation he had to fight his way out of. Probably still better than Glasgow. So we're gonna do one final quote here from the book directly, and this is kind of our cliffhanger. Before you'll have to listen to part two to find out the, uh, I guess the Cole's Nose version of the rest of Peter McAleese's incredible story. Holden Roberto withdrew into his villa and refused to speak to any of us. Finally, when only Dan Atkin and I were left, I persuaded the two Americans to talk to Roberto. We had no money at all, and they told him to pay for plane tickets for us to return home. On the 23rd of March, after two months in Africa, I flew back from Kinshasa on Alitalia Flight AZ-827 to Rome, and then by AZ-827. 282 to Heathrow, London, with very little money in my pocket. So at the end, uh, you mentioned the two Americans. They're they're the two CIA guys that were funding the whole thing. Obviously, after the mercenaries were killed, the money stopped. It was, yeah. just, it was just like, what the f-? Even the Ford administration was like, what the hell is going on over there? Um, and it was already like the money was too little, too late. Anyways, nothing would have changed the inevitable fate of the FNLA. Which is still a political party, by the way, in Angola, but they're not a fighting group anymore. Yeah, no, and I, I think, is the Unitas, is Unitas still a, that's a no, whole other story. No, no, but, no, yeah. no, 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 they're, they, yeah, they became like a prescribed, because they refused to take part. They refused to the, surrender. And they refused yeah. to take part in the parliamentary process at all. FNLA yeah. did, did take part yeah. in the process. MPLA, I think, is still the current yes, running government. The MPLA they, they won, they won the Civil War, spoiler yeah, yeah. alert, yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, he, he fights his fight and retreat, finally gets a gets his way to Zaire, gets on a plane and with the CIA guys donating a little bit of, literally donating their own like money to Peter, he's able to fly back to London and just put the two months of fun and games in Africa behind him. Um it's it's uh, it's already quite the tale. And it could have made a book all in itself what we talked about. That's actually just the first half of No Mean Soldiers. So again, you'll have to join us for part two as we cover the rest of this book. I, um, I, again, thank you to all of our listeners here at the Men Among Men Stories podcast, whether you're listening to us on our website, menamongmenstories.com, on Spotify, or iTunes, or all of your other favorite uh, podcast platforms. Uh, this episode might be one of our first on YouTube, if you, so you might actually be listening to there right now. You might also be listening to us on Commando Blog, our friends at commandoblog.com. That's K-O-M-M-A-N-D-O, commandoblog.com. They just launched a new business that will be a partner business to Commando Blog, uh, Commando Heavy Industries. 
and uh, you guys will be seeing a lot more advertisements and stuff from them in the future. I'm actually working with them right now with my company, Fire Force Ventures at www.fireforceventures.com, uh, doing a lot of important stuff in reference to a future move uh, to Texas, which is uh, the ultimate plan for my business. And uh, I do plan on throwing what's a, what's a, like a neck chain that they used to put on <laughs> Celtic slaves, whatever whatever that type of neck chain was that the Romans had. I plan on throwing one around Bindu and dragging him behind my white Arabian stallion and dragging him to Texas with me, where uh, he will be wedded at my discretion to a Texan woman, right? And uh, we'll, um, we'll we'll take it from there. So, uh, yeah. Any other podcast updates? Good luck. So, yeah, we've got some actually some really cool things, which may have already dropped by the time this podcast is up, but we are really expanding the merch store. We've got posters coming up. We've got T-shirts. We've got patches. We've got mugs coming pretty soon. A whole bunch of really cool stuff. Uh, our merch store is about to go from about two items to like... Ten? Ten or ten so. Or 15, yeah. Ten or so. Uh, so if you guys love the podcast and want to support us, that is probably the best way to do it. A lot of cool stuff. And we do have a tip jar now, too. We also have a tip jar. So if you don't want to donate on Subscribestar... Which is a recurring donation, by Which the way. is a recurring donation, yeah. uh... You can always donate for one time on our website. Yes, we are completely donation run, other than like the merch store and stuff. Yes, all that, that money our content work. will always be free, but yeah. a little bit of money here and there, guys, never helps. We are also recording. In Sorry, the- never hurts. Never, never helps. <laughs> never helps. Uh, way to help us. Yeah. So uh, we are also recording uh, in a new studio area thing, and uh, yeah, if you guys have any feedback on how the audio was this time around. Because uh, it might actually sound a little bit different, hopefully better. But if it is for whatever reason worse or weird or something off with it, do let us know. Um, we are not audio experts. We do everything ourselves, all the editing, all the recording. We have no staff. Uh, it's just the two of us in, in a room. So um, this this new spot that we're recording in, the acoustics are very, very good in here. And We have uh, the two guys who escaped from the firing squad chained in the basement and we make yeah. them do everything. Yeah, yeah. 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 We are moving along with this podcast and do appreciate your patronage, your continued patronage and support. Uh, thank you especially to all of our uh, Fire Force Ventures Buyers Club members that listen to this live every time we put them up. Um, your support is is awesome and, and really goes a long way. And of course, uh, special thanks to... And of course, special thanks to anybody that is currently active duty in the military right now, obviously with uh, global conflicts going on in certain parts of the world times are very sketchy and hold the line hold the line hang in there and also to all of the law enforcement emt emr fire rescue dispatchers the other paramedics thank you for what you do to allow us to do what we do and uh i'll leave it there um please join us again for part two of this podcast bindu So pull up, grab a chibouli, and have a great day, guys. Thank you for listening.